0: This podcast now boasts its own Patreon page. Become a patron and join us in being a node to help spread awareness and hope. Details at patreon.com/slash having a In this episode of season three of Having a Cuppa, we bring you a two-for-one this Christmas. I'm joined today by the Benevolent Bodie family. Christine Bodie is a recovering alcoholic who washed away a healthy portion of her adult life in a struggle with dependency on alcohol. Today, however, she works twice as hard reclaiming years lost with the help of her soulmate, her prodigious loyalty and study to the 12 steps of AA, and of course, her identity in Christ. Her soulmate in question is her devoted husband, John. John helps carry the tale of never having to leave her side, and the couple and I, equally as important, expound on a shared love and commitment that now more than ever requires diligent attention, especially after the travesty this year in the Middle East. Here's what I mean.
1: You are me, Ranger, son. Be real careful what you say next pops. I'll be ready to enter that burner You start shit talking my battalion. Never shall I fail my comrades. Gallantly will I show the world that I am a specially selected soldier. Energetically will I meet the enemies of my country. I shall defeat them on the field of battle, for I am better trained. And I will fight
0: with all my might. So I take it I answer to you now, CNO? No. The answer to him just like I do
2: commander
1: in chief gentlemen I want to make one thing clear before we
3: leave I intend to put you in harm's way any man who doesn't wish to join this mission step away right now alright then Go get our boy back.
0: Permission to go ashore for the last time.
1: Permission granted. (laughs) Hip, hip. (laughs) Hip, hip. Back.
0: Continued support for our veterans from every branch of the military. This week, Christine and John Bodie have a couple with me. Be prepared. Five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, Please welcome. This is Having a Cupper. Get ready for the show. A cup of your finest brew, thanks, love. Cheers, you're a gem. Round and round we go, where we stop, nobody knows. Let's get to it then. been involved in the media industry for almost 10 years but what interests me most is the triumph of the human spirit so off I go to parts unknown this is the journey upon us will lead us to the truths of the heart, taking us to destinations far and wide. From the US, the neighbours to the north, the UK, and everywhere else in the fray. Join me, sit back for the ride. Good tidings we bring. We're having a cuppa. New Jersey. couple here in front of me john and christine Bodie. welcome to having a cup it's a pleasure to have you both
3: thank you for having us glad to be
2: here
0: now christine let's kick off with you you and i met of course through our mutual friend sarah elizabeth and uh, we've communicated as such through hj3 in no uncertain amount of words i mean by all measure of criteria you're a you're a mother you're a working class gal but where exactly did it start and where did it all go wrong
3: I actually became an alcoholic later in my lifetime I raised all three of my children um I was a stay at home mom um I've mentioned before that I have a child who's on the spectrum high functioning but on the on the spectrum um he currently lives with me he's tw- 20, 28
2: be 29 in march 20,
3: 20. but um my alcoholism didn't start until much later in, in life because I also have a daughter who suffers from a mental illness and um, I think with just dealing with all of that um, you, know, uh, you know at home as a mom John my husband works m- many hours so I was mostly mm. home alone mm.
1: taking care of that. all these
3: things yeah it was, it was tough but it just got to a point um I think when my daughter hit I would say middle school
2: 12 years old yeah
3: is when I really started to drink Mm -hmm. and um I drank because I just didn't I I like we all why we all drink I just didn't want to feel it you know I didn't want to do it I wanted to be numb and it, it alcohol was literally my best friend it got me
0: through. <laughs> I can imagine that but <laughs> well, isn't that always of- the but isn't that always the conundrum you know you have that first yeah. swig you have that first taste it's friendly and the more you partake over an extended period of time friendliness turns to villainy and ultimately yeah. it spins out of control
2: well, well I, I, wa- I mean I watched obviously like it, it kind of started where her mom said like, I mean we've been married for 31 years and you know dated obviously like two years before that so i've obviously we've been together a long time and we would go out at night and, you know when we'd go to bars and stuff like that going out Christine and harley even drank you know i actually i'm the one who drank you know but you right. know i'm not a, am not a good drinker so so it's so it was never you know nothing i really liked a lot i mean i, I think i probably start like drinking when you're going out partying and stuff i think it probably stopped when i was like 22 23 to be honest with you but but uh it started with a mom kind of saying, hey, you need to relax. The kids are tough. Why don't you have a glass of wine every night? Try to unwind a little bit. And then I would see, I saw from that end where she would start with maybe a one and a half liter a week. And then, you know, we share the same bank account. So I could see. So you could see it increasing. And I'm like, hey, listen, is everything okay? So.
3: Yeah, so it's, it just started with that. Really just me having like um a panic attack, because I suffered from depression and anxiety. Oh,
0: isn't that the worst?
3: Uh, it's the worst. It is the worst. Um, so I started drinking. My mother said, here, have a glass of wine, right? Because in my opinion, um, I think alcohol is very glamorized now.
0: Oh, yes. And Especially that, with the mommy you know, wine culture this last year.
3: Y- yes. And and now being a reform, you know, not reform, but uh, an alcoholic in recovery, I can see it more and more on TV, even, and just the way they promote it. Now they're coming out with low-calorie alcohol, and it's just gotten so way out of control because alcohol, as you know, is just the number one killer. It's going to kill you, you know, eventually. It's interesting you you say that
0: because I have to share this perception with you. I can't agree with you more. What's the difference between the two most glamorized narcotics there is? one being alcohol and the other one being cigarettes. Cigarettes may cause lung cancer, fine, fair for dinkum. It can cause emphysema and because of the nicotine and tar being introduced through the bloodstream, it can cause heart attacks. I'm guilty of that. However, on the flip side, I've never hit a woman. I've never talked slurred. I've never crashed a vehicle. Okay, I've burned a vehicle with a cigarette butt, but that's besides the point. But with alcohol, it alters your mind to such a state that you can't separate fact from fiction anymore. It's only the blunt obstacle for polite saying that ultimately remains when you go on a, on a binge. But you're absolutely right, Christine. I remember when I had just moved back from the Northwest region. I was still working in commercial FM radio at the time. And you, you said initially it begins with, hey, have a glass of wine just to, you know, relax and and just to get your senses about you. But then it becomes a repeated pattern and offers it unconsciously because the moment that I got home, it would be a fact of where's the why? Yes. And then I would partake. And it just escalated from there. Was that more or less the same that happened to you going later uh, on? Oh, that
3: was exact- oh my God, yeah. Um, I would just, I would start drinking, thinking that it was okay. This is early on. I would start drinking thinking like at five o'clock, it's okay and i i would drink one and then it would end up being two three four whole bottle and i would do this every single night and it got to the point where i didn't drink in bars like i didn't go out and drink in a bar and drive home drunk i drank mainly in my home always in my home if i went to a party i drank but um and i would sit up in my room in the dark and just drink And I would hide bottles, I would hide them outside, I would hide them in drawers, um, anywhere as I could. And I would, you know, say, okay, I'm done for tonight and try to go to sleep. And then I get up and quickly take a squig and go back to bed, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I really tried to pretend I didn't have a drinking problem. But then again, you know, I did it for so long and it got to the point where the amount of alcohol I was drinking wasn't making me numb and I needed to felt like I needed to even go further than that mm. and so you have to remember I as I was drinking and consuming all this alcohol I was also taking clonopin a narcotic oh, God. because the alcohol just wasn't helping so um I was really in a bad state and really nobody knew it you know I know it so, I had a hangover every single day and I was miserable, but it was the only way I knew how to cope with life. Um, and then one day I can remember thinking like, cause my husband kept saying, you know, I think you have a problem. And I would get so offend- you know, defensive about it. Like, I don't have a problem. I could stop anytime I want. I said, I just don't want to. And then it just, you know, I found myself taking quizzes online. Am I an alcoholic? And then I was like, I don't know. I just could never figure out whether or not I was an out an alcoholic or not until
2: until (laughs) like
3: until like we moved uh a year ago.
2: Little over a year.
3: A little over a year ago. And we were cleaning, you know, moving. Well and my husband found
2: Well me and me and my son Patrick, we moved our house ourselves and found all my bottles oh, I, we found about 15 bottles
0: oh god <laughs> the entire skeletons in the closet just poured yeah. out. yeah well
2: they yeah. were in places I never thought they would have been and oh um, boy and 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 I, I listen I've known for years that Christine had a problem and I've you know I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times her, and she would get really angry at me uh you we saying I'm an alcoholic I'm saying I'm not saying that. I think you're drinking too much I think you need to cut back uh and and like either just, channel your energy to exercise or, you know, anything to try to, try to break the, the, the shape that she was in. It didn't seem to work. And I think when we moved and my son's like, man, mom's got a problem. Doesn't she? I'm like, yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, once we got into the new home, it was little, literally about a month after that, she started. Well, my, Well,
3: my son came to me, my son, Patrick, who's on the spectrum, he came to me and he said, mom, are you an alcoholic? And I can remember taking a breath and thinking. He goes, because we found a lot of bottles in the house. And I said, I am. And he goes, can you please stop? And that that's what I did. I called my um, insurance company and I got into um, rehab and I, I stopped.
0: Were you inpatient or outpatient?
3: I was outpatient because of COVID. Right. But I was to report weekly and every day I had to be on camera with um, a group of people for a few hours every single day for three months. I did that.
1: Uh, uh.
0: And
3: then um, I had I was drug tested every day. And then um, well, it's
0: embarrassing to do that in the beginning. I can
3: imagine. Very- my,
2: my company offers a good program for for um, for for uh, you know, the associates as well as, you know, either, you know, children or spouses, you know, to put them into a program. And there's criteria, obviously, she's mentioned getting uh, DT every day. That's because if she were to fail, she's out of the program. So mm-hmm. it was, uh, it was actually a really good benefit to have that because she tried another organization. And they I mean, the, the course was extraordinary. Uh, and our insurance wouldn't really cover it. So thankfully, my mm-hmm. company offers a program that they assist.
3: But yeah, that was tough because I had a detox at home by myself, Ugh. and I, you know, I couldn't sleep and I was nauseous and I mean, coming off alcohol is pretty tough by yourself. Um, I'm lucky I didn't have any seizures or anything because, like I told you, I was mixing narcotics with my alcohol.
1: As I got did to I.
3: The porn- yeah, I didn't care. Neither did I. Like, I really didn't. I didn't care, like I can remember when I was drinking, driving mm. in a car and going over the bridge and having thoughts of pulling over, just jumping off the bridge.
0: Well, how do you think I, I felt when things got bad? I always carried a loaded firearm with me because I used to, we used to work night shifts. And mm. if I felt I get, gave a unsatisfactory performance on the radio, I would want to pull over a side just in an empty little field somewhere and put that revolver to my temple and I tried to commit Mm -hmm. suicide twice. And what you're saying, Christine, is chapter and verse when I went through that initial stages of withdrawal is horrendous, that insomnia is terrible. doesn't matter if you put yourself to sleep, you can't get your receptors to shut down. But here's the thing, and I said this to someone who in turn, I got from someone else. When you take the substance away, or that dependent, rather, for more of a formal term, you put the body in shock, which is necessary for it to heal. But during the course of that shock, what does the body do? The mind and the body start to conflict with one another. Think if you take two positive sides of a magnet, it takes a positive and a negative to attract, not a positive and a positive. So it starts to push each other away. And that's why especially the concept of relapse is such a fickle issue to talk about in long term, because at any given moment, You know, something can happen, just something, whatever it may be, and you can fall off the wagon just like that. And I wanna talk to you about the concept of what has really helped me is my faith. My faith is integral in my recovery because every day I pray, God, please keep me sober another day. How can I be of service? Is that more or less the mindset for you as well in your walk or what approach do you take?
3: absolutely a hundred hundred and fifty percent um god is my higher power god has always been my higher power even before i was an alcoholic the difference now versus when i was before i was drinking as god being my higher power is that i put god before every situation i take god into every situation so for instance, if I'm anxious about something, you know, going to a doctor, I I send God in first, mm. and I rely on Him. Whether it's it's a, an outcome that I'm not gonna like or I'm gonna like, sure. I'm gonna trust in Him that um, He's gonna lead me in the right direction. Mm. And mm. Um, I I I pray. I I'm very religious now, extremely religious. I would not be here if it wasn't for God. Mm. He saved my life in many ways. And um, in some ways, as this might sound crazy, I'm thankful that he made me an alcoholic because he let me see what it is like to live a free life and to not have to worry like by myself to know that God's mm. with me. Mm. you know I don't have to struggle because I know he's gonna he's gonna catch me I mean I have my off days (laughs) and then I have to yeah (laughs) you know and I have to go back and remind myself of the third step and I I actually owe all my sobriety also to my fellowship and the 12 steps Mm. if you do the 12 steps if you do the 12 steps it works
1: oh yeah there's
3: no lie it works 100 and um i have to say i'm not trying to pat myself on the back or anything but i worked very hard to be sober this long i'm 14 months sober and i worked very hard i did the book i did the steps i did the work i go to my meetings i reach out when i struggle and i have my higher power which i will take with me and you know, it's made me, um, I believe has made me a better person for my children now because I can hear them now. When I was drinking my, my. you know, you just don't, you're in a cloud, you mm, know? so Absolutely. So now I can smell better. I can see better. I can feel better. Um, as far as like, I mean, just walking out and seeing the trees and the leaves and the sun, I didn't appreciate that, mm. you know? i wasn't able to go to my son and have a conversation with him and listen to him you know and now i'm able to do that and um it's just been amazing my recovery's been it's been amazing i never ever ever thought i could quit drinking and be okay and i am and And i owe that to
0: and you've become more and more you've become more and more mature as a person And I use that word sparingly because, you know, people say you reach the age of 21, then you're an adult, but not necessarily always in spirit. And I think, you know, in our interactions, you and I have come to know each other for the better part of a year. It's been delightful to hear you speak. And more often than not, whenever there's been something troubling on your mind, you haven't spared the horses. You've really shared what's what's plighting you what's keeping you back. But then you always end a sentence with, I'm grateful to be sober for another day. And I'm grateful to God for keeping me sober. That really is something else, not a problem, not a problem. That's really something to to tap yourself on the shoulder for. Now, that sounds a little bit paradoxical, because ultimately, at the end of the day, you don't want pride to kick in, because then it might keep us off the beaten, uh, off the beaten track. But in the for 14 months that you've now become sober, are there certain times where you think back on your former dark days as we speak of, do you irk a bit or do you say, you know what, I love the way that I was because I'm not perfect, I wasn't perfect then, I'm getting better every single step of the day and that's not who I am anymore, this is who I am now.
3: Yes, um, I do think about those dark days and I do see a difference in my, I actually see a lot of difference in myself, but um, it's been long and it's been hard because even though I am 14 months sober, every single day, as you know, you is a day you have to fight alcohol, you know, it, I'm never going to be better. It's a disease. And... Um, so when life happens on life's terms as we know it, hmm. um, sometimes that can be very difficult for me. And um, I just have to remember that I have to turn to my higher power at that time hmm. and like I always do and you know p- put my faith and trust in that. So my, my journey's been been great, but of course there's been hiccups and um, just trying to struggle through one day maybe compared to the other day. I also have anxiety and depression, like I mentioned, which I still have. So, um, but all in all, I feel as though that I feel healthier. Mm. I feel clear headed. I mean, I, I don't have that. You know, when you're an alcoholic and nobody knows it and you have to go to a place and there's no alcohol. <laughs> It's like looking, it's like, oh, oh my God, like, I would go to Disney. I'd be like, what do you mean there's no alcohol in this park? <laughs> like, I would panic. <laughs> she, <laughs>
2: like would wait, yeah, she couldn't wait till dinner to get a drink. Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the happiest place on earth for her. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's true.
1: It's breaking the
0: silence on the dotted line yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: but john i was uh, going to ask you this question in the 14 months that you've seen these changes i'm sure there must have been a sight to behold for yourself
2: uh yeah i mean it's funny because we uh she was in a process and we went out to uh, a place in pennsylvania you know stayed over from our in new jersey uh to, just to get out and go it's like it's called amish country so it's really nice it's country it's uh right right takes you back a little bit it's a beautiful it's a beautiful place to go to shop to go you know spend a day whatever and uh that's when she was in the beginning process it was you know middle of october and uh you know a little over a year ago and and you know yeah i could see christine was struggling trying to find her right venue to improve and try to figure out how to straighten this out, and, uh, try to work on herself. I mean, you know, we talked, I mean, both her grandparents were, or both grandfathers were alcoholics, functioning mm. alcoholics. Um, you know, and the funny thing is when I was a kid, I used to do- work for a liquor store and I would deliver out, uh, uh uh, uh, a, a, a booze, wine, and booze to not knowing it was her grandparents. <laughs> and, and and I'm like, when I finally met them, I'm like, holy, holy, holy shit, that's that's her grandfather. And you know, you know Christine began, did, Chris, Chris, Christine didn't drink, but he was a functioning alcoholic. Every day he was at the bar at the place we used to go called the Glen Rock Inn, and he was there every single day. And you know, he was a staple there. Um, and then her other grandfather uh on her dad's side you know it was you know he always treated me really nice and you know but if i you know i, I used to do i used to do construction and and i like building things you know on my hands and he had a beautiful shop and i would go over there at nine o'clock in the morning some mornings and the first thing out of his mouth was john grab a beer you know? <laughs> he, had he had the little bud he had the little Bud. so he had the budweiser nips and he would say to his to his why cynthia get john a beer i'm like I, I don't want a beer. It's breakfast. I'm like, he's like, just have a beer. And I'm like, so they so they both were functioning. And, you know, and again, Christine didn't drink a lot when we were going out or early stages of our marriage. It really was brought on by, by, I, I think more so than, not so much my, my son, that Patrick, and then you know, she says on the spectrum, you would never know he's on the spectrum if you talk to the kid. He's very I'm smart. I'm on the spectrum. Delicate. Yeah. Well, listen, I room being on the spectrum, but you would never know it. So he's, he's more he's more in tune with with world events than most adults and uh he's a smart kid and he's you know he's he's uh you know he's 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 definitely uh of the conservative mind but he's not you know he doesn't he he just doesn't like certain things that get pushed on people these days but that aside um but but uh my daughter's the one that really caused a lot of family uh friction (laughs) and still does she still does and still does so that was i would say
0: no family is perfect, blood, no. blood still is thicker than water. I learn that lesson every given day.
2: Yeah, and you know, but I, to, see to see Christine go through the changes like you were asking about, like how she struggled in the beginning, I was afraid she was gonna slip back into it, and you know, and and, uh, and uh, she, she fought through it. It was not easy for her, she fought through it, and she just changed immensely. Um, about how I think how she thinks about things. I mean, she's had some bad days where I thought was really worried that she was gonna go get, grab a drink. Um, mm. And she's learned how to cope, I think, better than I probably give her credit for about how she gets through things. The stress, again, it's the stress usually that my daughter causes. Uh, and it's, it's, not, it's not easy to deal with uh, because, we, you know, she's probably shared with you, our grandson, our older grandson lived with us for about two and a half years. And, uh, and that was really the connection and every day I have to tell Christine, she's got to stop worrying so much about, you know, it's hard to do. I mean, you know, I was, I was this father figure for the better part of two and a half years and, and, uh, it's not easy for me sometimes, but that was a trigger for Christine to continue to drink because, uh, it just, just the anxiety and the pain and that the way my daughter's handled things at times has made it difficult for her and me, but more for her because she's the one with the disease, not me, you know?
0: Hmm, hmm. I can relate but, because but she I, really
2: has transformed herself over the last, you know, the last 14 months. Like I, I'm very proud of her. I, 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 I know she could do it. I, I knew, and I, and I knew she could do it and, um, and, uh, and maintain what she's doing, but uh, it has, it hasn't been easy. I can tell you that just watching her from afar or close no, to.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Now I can relate with regards to familial ties often causing the root of anxiety, I went through exactly the same thing. You know, got sober, 2018, five months dry sobriety, boom, here I get a cancer diagnosis out of the clear blue. I'm like, great, I'm trying to get my life back on track. Now God's going to punch my ticket, literally,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: beat the cancer, and the year and a half after that, also tackling personal struggles, professional problems, having a father around that's also just a bum. And eventually yeah. just drawing that line of, you know what, when you do yourself will run riots, there's that section that says the people who are poisoned to you. And I had to trot down. And that's the most difficult part to do, trotting down the people that are poisonous for you. And I had to put down my own biological dad. But it brought yeah. me to the point where I said, get out, just get out. It's difficult choices to make, but I don't want to sound like a devil's advocate, but often that's the sort of things that you have to do, not necessarily the way that I did it, but being in that circumstance is, I want to say, almost imperative for growth. Now, John, the reason why I also invited you on the program, there's another matter that's personal to me. And I think this generation needs to catch a wake up to the real responsibilities towards us as citizens is saying thank you to our nation's defenders which is diminished I'm sad to say amongst my culture we don't have respect for law enforcement and with respect with regards to police here in South Africa that are corrupt respect for the law is imperative but even in the states uh respect for law enforcement respect for firefighters and then Respect for vets is something that you've been invested in for quite a long while. Tell me more about that.
2: Well, I mean, my father was a police officer, so I have a very crazy story. I'm not going to go into it. It's too long to tell you, but I was raised as an only child, but I was adopted when I was one. But I, so basically my parents adopted me later on in life. They their, their friends, their friends already had their children and they were already onto their I was probably onto their grandchildren in some respects, and they adopted me when they were probably your late 40s,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, lived to mid uh, 40s. And uh, so I had the benefit of growing up. Uh, my father was a World War II vet, but he didn't see any action, but he served. My uncle was the one that really had a big impact on how I felt about the military and about stuff in general about like, you know, respecting that generation um and he, he was a he was in the he was in the infantry he saw heavy duty action got the purple heart was a war. the battle of the
0: bulge didn't he
2: battle of the bulge he was obviously you know and, and let me tell you as a kid growing up i had a lot of questions i you would ask him like tell me about this tell me about that cuz you would see movies and oh, you yeah? would ask questions and you know i i he reluctantly told me things he told me some i mean when i was probably 10 11 12 whatever he told me a lot of things that you know I said was is it like the movies and he said yes and no he said the violence you can't imagine what it's like when you're actually in hand-to-hand uh, combat with somebody and you're actually fighting for your life mm. and so he so he told me a lot of stories like that which had an impact on me how I felt about you know serving I probably one of my biggest I would say regrets as I didn't join I wish I had joined when I was younger I really I was I. kind of a I wish I did. I wish I I really thought about it. I didn't really know what direction my life was going to take me, you know, when I was like, you know, 18, 19, graduated high school. I'm like, should I join? Should I not join? I wasn't really sure, Um, you know, and that turned out not to be my path. I wish I had, I wish I had, because like you mentioned about teaching discipline and respect and really being self-efficient in life in general. And Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, I think that's one of the biggest things that today's generation between you and me, I mean we're two you're on a podcast right now. I gotta tell you, in some respects, Facebook, Twitter has direct the younger generation. Um, yeah. it's not it's not they get their news off of it. it. it's it's so easy to hide behind a Twitter Twitter feed or a, or a Facebook <laughs> Don't get me post. Started. And and I just think it's counterproductive in today's youth, I mean, so the company I work for Home Depot you know I, I can it's it's because it, I hire a lot of young young men and women you know 18 19 maybe it's their first job or second job I know right away if someone was actually raised raised right with their work ethic I could see how they work how they listen and, and their respect level and you can see the ones that don't really give a crap and you know I <laughs> I, I actually try to take them under my wing and try to teach them a little bit, you know. And 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 and, and you know. And sometimes I could say I'm successful, and sometimes you know they you know, they feel like they know better. And and uh, you know. But but in general, you know, like I said, I, I grew up with the respect of of uh, one. Uh, and I trust me, I was not a good kid by any stretch of the imaginations, but, but I always had, I always had a, a, a little voice in the back of my head said, okay, you pushed it far enough time to go back to being, baby back to normal and respectful. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and I think a lot, that mm-hmm. had a lot to do with the father that I grew up with as well as my uncle and, and just being exposed to like trying to have common sense and do the right thing for yourself and for others around you. So as I was, you know, I, as I worked for Home Depot and, and, and my job, you know, kind of taught me a lot of. More about responsibility, self-responsibility, uh, commitment, uh, and then I learned when I was, you know, as I as I grew with the company, what we do to support our veterans. So, um, you know, it's uh, it goes a long way to to uh, give back. And it's probably one of the things, like you said, today's today's culture. Um, it really kind of aggravates me to see that we do not in our country take the proper care of our veterans. It really is frustrating to see that you have homeless vets and. You know whether it be republican or democrat they're not doing the right thing and you know meanwhile you can get you know probably three million illegal immigrants crossing our border borders without much to do no fuss no muss. they walk in and we hand them everything that they want and our veterans are living on the street
1: which is unfair uh, i think
2: it's not fair it's really kind of disgusting that we allow that to happen uh i don't think they have enough of a voice to actually stand up for them so when when we get a chance to go do a project for people that you know that maybe a vet's on a, you know either disabled or on a fixed income when we get to do projects like that it means a lot to that person it means a lot to it's a good thing to give back like that so it's oh, yeah. it's something that 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 uh our company I'm, again i'm fortunate to work for somebody so it's one it's one of the things that um i'm, I'm thankful to do um you know I, every I, you know like i said it's COVID took a little bit of that away but at the end of the day you know we we you know I get to do, do things I would probably do anyway but also work in the company that I do to, that I, I'm able to do that so it's it's a blessing to do that.
0: I'm sure, yeah. I must tell you an, about a month ago I had to take my mother to get a license renewed and uh, there's a new licensing department that opened up in the neighboring township and of all places to open up it was in a military metroplex and I mean we're talking proper military vehicles driving around as if it's taxi cabs and uh, full uh, uh, officers in full dress waltzing about. And after we went out, we did our appointment and uh, we were on the way back to the car. They allow private citizens to waltz about, but of course, by uh, by appointment. So you can't just, you know, walk about and roughly about 10 minutes Away from the car, I noticed two high-ranking officers busy congregating, and one of them caught my reaction, and I just placed my hand on my heart, and he didn't have to, he just saluted. I can't tell you what that does for me as a person, because I mean these are people who put their lives on the line and they fight wars that we don't even know about. John, you said this earlier yourself. Here's another thing that enrages me. Now bear in mind, you and I are completely different generations, never mind, different nationality. I was listening to the late Adrian Cronauer. Robin Williams played him in the film Good Morning Vietnam. He delivered an mm. address for the Vietnam, uh, not the Vietnam, the Veterans Association. They hold a convention, or they did hold a convention, I believe in either Baltimore or in D.C. And he spoke about having to deal with reporting the news when he was stationed in, in Saigon and the notion of the 60s. You know, you guys know, you're from that gener- uh, era where it was The summer of love and the soldiers who had fought there were characterized as if I remember correctly, opium addicts and baby killers. Those are two things.
2: Baby killers. Yep.
0: Those are the two words, the two expressions that I remember. But I'm going to quote his words going out into the field, never spoke once to a single dope addict, a murderer or a baby killer. But what he did, whom he did speak to were people who may not have been happy with the situation that they were in because let's think logically it was Lyndon Johnson who had escalated the war. Yep. But they were determined to do the best they could because they fought for God, they fought for country, they fought for countrymen, values and virtues that the Constitution upholds, which is my freedom, your freedom, Christine's freedom. And to add to this, I was listening to the radio the other day now Similar to Vietnam, my father fought in the Angola War. Um, Much like with Vietnam, kids, 19, 18 years old, barely old enough to drive a car, taken from out of their native home space into a completely French area, culture shock kicked in, and they were completely unprepared. And when they came home, they lost limbs, they lost their identity, and the government said, ah, Welcome back. Thank you for fighting. It was an unpopular war. Tough luck, old boy. But in this radio interview, this guy was 53 at the time, had jogged, is the word, through five marriages. And for every night of those 20 years, he had nightmares of losing his friend, or reliving the experience Mm. of losing his friends alongside him. That had been killed in the war. You listen to these kinds of conversations and your mind opens up and you think to yourself, excuse my French, shit. I, as a 21-year-old who has the privilege of having an education, a tertiary education, studying for something that I love and thinking that everything fell out of the sky, this was provided by these people who fought for me. They didn't ask for it, but they did it and i'm not doing enough on my end to thank them for their duty and that's where it started all of my family members were involved in law enforcement and in the military and i sit here before you guys today and i'm really introspective towards the fact of the men and women who heed the call because it's not a choice you make it's a calling And I think for many family members, there's always that lingering feeling of, are they ever going to come home? And when they do, you actually want to walk out of, want to walk up to them out of instinct and just hug them and say, thank you. That's the feeling I get. What, what is your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. I mean, so up the road from us, um, there's a Vietnam, New Jersey, uh, Vietnam Memorial. So I've been fortunate to go on three tours there when they walk you through. And it's very interesting. And, uh, and like you mentioned, you know, basically they had all these young kids, 18, 19, being sent over there. And and then um it was a political war. L, L, LBJ was, you know, they escalated the war and these guys were put in a really bad position and they were given poor representation back home in the States. Um, you know, when you hear it from a veteran, that's a, a Vietnam veteran tell his story from the time he was a kid about losing friends and his trip there, and and you know, just being in the jungle, and what, and and when you see how, how, what kind of fighters they were, you know, not the Americans, you know, the Vietnamese, and the, the tunnels, everything that they did. That when you hear mm-hmm. the more from their perspective, and then you hear about how they were treated when they came home, it actually is really like they you live it. Yeah, you know.
0: Yeah.
3: Very you emotional?
0: No, that's hundred percent. Please do because I'm about to do this.
2: Listen, I only say that because what I I can only remember one man was telling me the story. You know, he's 19 years old and his friend blows up in his arms. And these guys are telling the story like like you're there. You're, they're telling a the story like they're still there. And then they come home and they have to get mistreated and they get spit on, you know, and and uh, they weren't even allowed to wear their their Dress uniforms when they came back to the states because they were attacked at the airports, you know. And you yeah. hear about, you know, it's just it's just a sad state that was, and 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 many of them I know. Like when you see a Vietnam veteran, you, the, the first thing you're supposed to say is "Welcome home."
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
0: And, and
2: uh, 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 you know, I, I mean, I, I get emotional about it because when you hear somebody tell it, it's hard it's hard to listen to, them. And, and it really makes you think about like especially the status of the country today, like what is going on with people, how they, the, the, the vision is just unmeasurable. It's unmeasurable on every single level, whether you, again, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you are like it's so divisive right now in our country and so divisive probably through the world that you got to wonder like, where's common sense gone? And where's where, where's, where's the greater thought of like, you know, doing what's right for people—not on your policy, but doing right for people—and I think that's one of the things that I think that have, have really, really taken our country backwards. You know, you can say what you want about Trump, how divisive he was, and this or whatever, but oh. it, don't. I I, 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 mean, I can. Say I supported the guy because I think his policies worked, and I look at what's going on today and like, you got to be kidding me! Look what they did to these pure soldiers in Afghanistan. Oh yes, you know,
0: it's a travesty. It's just,
2: it's it's heresy it's and there's still americans trapped on enemy lines and no one says a word yeah and it's very it's very it's very so when i think about stuff like just happened to those those veterans in (laughs) in uh, in vietnam and then i think about and i equate that to these poor families or 13 people that killed in afghanistan i'm thinking to myself this is like a redo of like of of obviously lesser proportions but to those families it's the same magnitude you just lost loved ones and it's it's like why why you know and it's very it's very tough to hear and like i said i only quote that because like when i like and i can the last tour i did at this museum was back in i'm going to say it's a couple of months ago back in the fall and uh and i get emotional about it because the guy the guy was literally in tears telling his story and it just you just think like if it's still that painful for him today and he tells his story probably on three or four tours a day. Every tour is no different. He gets emotional every time he gets to a point about describing his life, mm. you know, and what it's like to deal with PTSD his whole life, you know.
0: Absolutely. And,
2: and so it's tough. You know, so listen, I do have a great appreciation for for the military for what they do and for, for and, and what and what and what they try to do to, to protect the average citizen who may not know exactly what's going on behind the scenes.
0: Well, I have to tell you, I was telling Christine when we arranged this about a couple of weeks ago. If there's one dream that I have, it's to, even as a, and this sounds silly to, to say, John, in premise, but I will, will not lie to you. My heart is still for America because America, through the media, when the media knew what it, what it was doing, it fed me, it educated me, it gave me a sense of identity. And because of the fact of my education i was taught more western values
1: mm-hmm. i don't
0: identify anymore as a dutchman i identify as an englishman and because of that and because of studying american culture i want to help the vets somewhere along the line myself mm-hmm. and i don't care if i'm if i'm not an american citizen i will do it my word is my honor because i owe them for the life that i have today my respect for them goes unabated. We were talking about, quickly, about what happened in Afghanistan, and I was thinking about, again, about the Vietnam War. Uh, Robert McNamara, who served under LBJ in his yep. later years, wrote a book about his experiences. Remember, he served with guys like Iliad Shaw, who survived the Saturday Night Massacre, when it, which happened more or less at the same time. And I felt sorry for the man, because when you read his book and when you hear him speak, You come to realize the choice wasn't his he was following an order, which was to escalate, but he knew the the repercussions, but he bared the brunt for it and he took it like a man. Mm -hmm. But how I think there will always be a divisive opinion on what has happened then and I'm sure there will be divided opinion on what has happened now but something that people mustn't forget. Error in judgment has been something prevalent throughout the course of history. Look at other historical figures. Alexander the Great. Look at Adolf Hitler. Look at, well, it's not the best example to use, but you understand my meaning. Even tyrants make errors in judgment, which makes them a tyrant. Greed, gluttony, lust, whatever the case may be, it results in error in judgment. But the most vital thing that people should be focusing on now is triumph of the human spirit and the foundations of what makes us essentially human. And I want to reiterate again, and this is why I love the US so much, love of God, love of country, love of countrymen. Without those three things, you're dead in the water, and I don't care what people say.
2: It's true, it's true. And again, I I see that. I think think today, a lot of people take that for granted. Um, And that's why the people that do decide to serve because obviously it's not a draft. It's you know, you, you elect to go do this. Um, I think that that speaks a lot for those people that, that make that sacrifice knowing that mm. they might be, they might, they may be asked to go do something that maybe they didn't have that in mind when they signed up, they may be joining the army or the you know, Marines or whatever for an education, you know, part of their schooling or whatever. And they put themselves in a situation where they will have to defend the country some point, some way. And uh, you know, I think that's that's an admirable that's an admirable trait that, you know, I think it's taken for granted to be honest with you.
1: Mm.
0: Mm. And every time that you undertake these projects, it must just stir something on the inside. You mentioned someone speaking to you, but just, you know, for example, being able to contribute to maybe building a smart house. I understand Gary Sinise with the Gary Sinise Foundation has built smart houses yeah, and, a- and so forth.
2: Yeah, he's a he's a great veteran supporter. I don't think we've ever done anything with him, but I know that we've done. You know, a lot of our stuff is through. You know, I'm not sure if we did Wounded Warriors Project, but a lot of it's more local for us, not maybe on a mm-hmm. national scale. Mm-hmm. And, but but a lot of our our uh, our projects that we pick. Turned out to be really big events. I mean, and uh, like I said, when you see, I mean, we Home, Home Depot is orange, so you when you see a hundred or 150 people wearing orange shirts and you're doing something for a good cause, it gives you a good um, sense of of doing the right thing for somebody that desperately needs it. You know, whether it's a single yeah. person, we've done we've done complexes where uh, it benefited the whole, you know, it was all vet, a whole veteran community community. Um, there was one that we did had you know, multiple units, uh, these were people coming home that were either homeless or they were in a transition of trying to find work. Uh, and you know, this, this organization would help Matt. We did almost, I mean, everything we did two new gardens, we did landscaping, we did painting, we did a whole bunch of different things. So at the end of the day, you know, uh, it's just a form of giving back to give them the the help that they need and to show them that people do really care about what happens, you know? Yeah.
0: And it makes you feel good to give rather than just to get all the time.
2: Correct. Correct.
0: I want to go back to you, Christine. If they're starting to bring this to a close, what are some of the life lessons that you have learned in recovery up until this point? And how has it affected you and your role as both parent and partner?
3: Well, what I learned during recovery is that I'm a lot stronger than I ever thought I was. Um, I was never very self-confident. I didn't have self-confidence. I was kind of like a a shy person, you know? Mm, So through that, I gained strength within myself that I could accomplish anything. Um, I think that's the biggest thing was just finding trying to find i'm still trying to find out who i am you know but i'm stronger i can feel myself getting stronger mm. um i never i never had a hard time standing up for my children never i don't know why i just could i'm like uh a, a crazy ass woman when somebody hurts my child but <laughs> um
0: like a mother supposed to
3: strong. be yeah but, um <laughs> I was a very, um, I'm, I'm definitely finding myself now. So I've gained, um, I've gained wisdom. Most mm. of all, I've gained the wisdom and, um, and I, I feel bad that I had to gain this all so late in my life, you know, cause I'm going to be 54. No, 55, five. Really? Yeah.
0: No, 20 God. years old with 35 years experience.
3: Let's well, get, I'll be let's keep things in perspective yeah. here. <laughs> I'm going to be 55 on the day after Christmas. So I've gained a lot of wisdom. Um, I've gained a lot of um, spirituality, you know, through God. Mm. Um, And as far as being a partner, I'm more present for, I believe I'm more present for my husband because I'm not sitting up in the in my room at night in a chair downing alcohol mm. you know and not and not being there you know um i'm just i'm just more present for him i believe i don't know if he's gonna agree with you on that but oh,
2: you're present no, i'm only kidding no i'm really <laughs> kidding
3: i'm, I'm more she, present
2: she is and I, you know what i will tell you to see her grow like i remember when she was going through her steps uh you know being asked to lead a meeting and Ooh, and you know the things that that involve all of that obviously uh to you know through covid when she's on you know doing these chats and she's on you know she's on with her group and she's leading the meeting i mean i, if, I would never have thought that christine would do something like that or be able to do it i mean i think she's always been a strong person whether she gives herself credit for that or not Um, but when it comes to like stepping up and being confident, I think her confidence through all of this has grown immensely in herself. And that's Mm. something Mm. that, you know, she should be proud of herself for without a doubt.
3: Yes. And, but I, um, as far as like as partnership, I feel like I've, I've grown closer to my husband during this process of recovery Mm. because I needed to lean on him. Um, just, you know, not that far out. I was having a bad day. And, you know, I had to call him and he just keeps me on track. And so I think I think a lot of situations that we've been through
2: we've been through a lot. We've been
3: through a lot together and it's always brought us together. It's never separated us. Mm -hmm. And um I think it continues to, first of all, it's made me appreciate him more. It's made me appreciate my life more, my children more. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a lot of gratitude for uh, everything, everything. Just waking up every day, I'm grateful I get to open my eyes, you know? And one of the things I've always been passionate about I think that's what we have in common, too, is I've always been passionate about helping other people ever since I was young, you know, Mm, mm. Um, I used to work with children with severe retardation. I spent all my high school years and even after that doing that and always wanted to be a nurse. So so I was always on that side of the fence of just wanting to help. Mm, And mm. um, now that I'm in recovery, I really want to give back what what I've gotten given to me hmm. by the grace of God, you know, so. And you're I starting to that do that it. Would, yeah, you know. By
0: appearing on the show.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That- <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> guys, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I understand it's been very difficult for you guys so far, as you mentioned. I just want to say I'll keep you both in my prayers john especially with you i want to say thank you for your patriotism for the troops and i pray that that continues and who knows maybe a couple of years down the line you and i will be shoulder to shoulder it's giving
2: christine (laughs) thank you so much
0: merry christmas to you you, both
3: merry
2: christmas you and your mom yeah merry christmas
0: This following message goes out to all our men and women who currently and have served. Proud of our nation, you answered her call, defending the freedom and safety of all. On land or on sea or on jets above, you went out of duty and honor and love. However they served, Lord, wherever they went, bless them and help them to know what it meant a treasured thanks goes out to my guests for their courageous participation in this program and to our men and women in all branches of the military thank you have a blessed festive season and do come home safely So it is here where we have to make a pit stop. But don't fret, we'll be back soon. In the meantime, tell your friends, join us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and Podcast One. Until we see you again, this was having a cuppa for the week. See you
1: soon.